This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Did you know that 30 years ago, American kids led the world in academic achievement? Back then, kids who were born in the United States were less likely to be anxious and depressed compared to kids who were born elsewhere. Kids also used to be happier than their counterparts in many other countries of the world. Not anymore. Today, American kids are less happy than kids in most other developed countries. They're more likely to be on medication for ADHD and anxiety and depression, and they do worse in school. So what happened? Well, according to many experts, all of those things, the happiness, the academic achievement, along with things like obesity and the explosion in prescribing psychiatric medication, all of those can be traced to one thing, and that is parents letting their kids call the shots. In other words, parents are failing to prioritize the parent-child relationship, and they're allowing a child-peer dynamic to take precedence. As a result, you've got a bunch of kids who have no absolute standard of right and wrong, they lack discipline, and they look to their peers and the Internet for direction instead of looking to us, their parents. Fortunately, there is hope, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in this part of today's show, how to reassert your authority by doing things like limiting screen time and encouraging better habits at the dinner table and, perhaps most importantly, by teaching humility and perspective. We'll be right back. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, my guest for this part of today's show is Dr. Leonard Sachs, who's the author of The Collapse of Parenting, How We Hurt Our Kids When We Treat Them Like Grown-Ups. Dr. Sachs, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. You know, the book is divided up into two sections. You've got problems and you've got solutions. And so I want to, I think, make some sense to go through some of the problems and then talk about the solutions. So set the stage for us a little bit. There are a lot of things that you're talking about that kids were, are, used to be happier, they used to be healthier, they used to be doing better in school compared to the rest of the world. What happened? Well, that's, a, that's the question I try to answer in the book. Uh, one of the areas I really focus on, because I am a practicing physician, is kids being put on medication. You know, I've been a, a medical doctor now for 30 years. Uh, earned my MD uh, in 1986, and uh, 30 years ago, it was pretty unusual for uh, eight-year-olds or 12-year-olds to be on psychiatric medication. Now it is very common. Uh, 30 years ago, there was very little difference between the United States and other countries in the proportion of kids who are on medication. Uh, today, a uh, kid in the United States is 14 times more likely to be on medication for ADHD compared to a kid in the United Kingdom. An American kid is 40, 40 times, 4-0, 40 times more likely to be on medication for bipolar disorder compared to a kid in Germany. A uh, kid in the United States is 93 times more likely to be on medications like Risperdal 
Zyprexa uh, medications used in this country often to control outbursts and oppositional defiance behavior compared to a kid in Italy. Uh, so what's happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, so the numbers are interesting, but I, I think one could probably argue from an anthropological point of view, we're not significantly different than right. kids I mean, in England, right? I mean, can, no you know, change can, in the DNA. Yeah. And indeed, I've had families who've been in different countries. Uh, so family just returned uh, to the United States after spending four years in England, and mom has a son, and he's now nine years old. And, you know, he's, he's okay at, at school, and he was doing okay in, in England. Um, and, you know, he's a little bit above average. Um, but she said within weeks of returning to the United States, the teachers and then the other parents were telling her, you know, why don't you get him evaluated? Maybe he needs to be on medication. And she said it was creepy. It was like everyone's working for the drug companies. <laughs> yeah, this never happens in England. Uh, but it seems like here the default is put your son on medication. Why not? Let's see if it helps. Right. Uh, and uh, from her perspective, having spent four years in England, she really had a very gut experience of how the United States is now an outlier internationally. Right. That's right. So I'm curious about this because I think there are a couple different ways that this can go. One is that that kids behave differently because of the the structures in place in schools that are less tolerant of of acting out, or that we just don't tolerate it here, and so we're gonna you know we're gonna medicate kids. I mean, wh what what is yeah. the difference? Are, are the kids acting differently? No, over the there? kids are not acting differently. I've listen. I have visited schools all across Australia, more than forty schools in Australia. Uh, over the last 11 years um, in New Zealand and England and Scotland and so forth. Uh, kids are kids. Uh, but the reaction to kids' misbehavior is very different uh, in the United States today compared with the United States 30 years ago and compared to other countries today. So, look, in every country you're going to find uh, kids who run around, young kids who run around the class and throw things and don't listen very well. Uh, in the rest of the world, outside of North America, and in the United States 30 years ago, a teacher might have said to a parent, uh, look, your son is defiant, uh, disrespectful, talks back, doesn't listen. We need you to speak to him. He's, he's quite rude, and we need you to explain to him that this behavior simply is not acceptable. Uh, that doesn't happen in the United States very much anymore. What is much more likely to happen in the United States uh, with the same kind of kids showing the same kind of behavior, the teacher in this country is much more likely to say, you know, your son is, is uh, running around, not listening, uh, rude, defiant. Have you thought of having him evaluated? You know, maybe he has a psychiatric disorder. And the parent takes uh, the child to the board-certified child psychiatrist. And in this country, that child psychiatrist is very likely to say, well, let's try medication and see if it helps. And the medication will help. That's what's scary. Uh, these are very powerful medications, and they will make a difference. And people assume, well, the medication helped, therefore he must have this disorder. Uh, and that is not accurate. These medications are not specific. Um, they will calm down any child. Uh, uh, but you know, what's the difference between you saying your child is rude and saying your child might have a psychiatric disorder. If I say your child is rude, 
the burden is on you, the parent, and on your child to mm-hmm. make a difference. If I see your child might have a psychiatric disorder, well, then a very reasonable next question is perhaps medication would be appropriate. And the result is that we are medicating kids on a scale in this country which is without parallel anywhere else on the planet. Right. But why, I guess? I mean, why, where did this happen? How did we all of a sudden decide that we want to externalize this and we blame it decide. on other people? We didn't decide. There, there was nothing so conscious going on. Here's how it happens. Let me give you an example from my own practice. Uh, this boy um, was doing well in elementary school, doing well in middle school. In high school, though, his grades started to decline. Ninth grade wasn't so good. Tenth grade really taken a beating. And he's telling his parents, you know, I really have trouble concentrating and focusing. And they take him to the child psychiatrist, the adolescent psychiatrist, who says, let's try Adderall or Vyvanse and see if it helps. And after one week, the teachers are calling and saying, oh my goodness, what a difference. I had no idea your son was so sharp. He's so bright. He's, he's, he's a genius. It's wonderful. What a difference. Uh, and the student, uh, the parents, the teachers, and the prescribing physician all may feel like, look, this medication was prescribed for ADD. It's been tremendously helpful. Uh, therefore, clearly, he has ADD, right? No. So the parents brought this kid to me because he's having palpitations and losing weight, and they're concerned, and they saw something I wrote for the New York Times about medication being overprescribed. So they bring it to me, and I do a careful sleep history. I ask him... Uh, the, the, the psychiatrist is asked, how much sleep does he get? And the parents said, well, he's in his bedroom at 9, doesn't come out until 6 the next morning. But the psychiatrist neglected to ask, what's in his bedroom? And it turns out he's got a PS4 in his bedroom, he's got his cell phone in his bedroom, and he's very forthright when you ask him. He usually stays up to 1 or 2 in the morning every night, or almost every night, playing Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, Halo, whatever. Mm-hmm. He's sleep-deprived. He's getting four hours of sleep a night. He should be getting eight or nine. Sleep deprivation perfectly mimics ADD. What is Adderall? What is Vyvanse? They're amphetamines. They're speed. They will compensate for the sleep deprivation. But the appropriate remedy for sleep deprivation is sleep, not amphetamines, <laughs> not speed. Yeah. But the parents, the parents have stepped back from their authority. Right. They feel like, hey, you know, we don't want to invade his privacy or tell him what to do. We believe in letting kids decide. Well, you know, in some domains, letting kids decide is fine. But in the domain of are you allowed to play video games at 2 in the morning, it's not fine. The parents have to turn off the device and, if necessary, remove it from the room and say no video games. no, number one, no video games till you've done your homework, and certainly no video games after 9 right. o'clock. You know, I want to jump ahead for a little bit from, from the medication because that's the whole topic of a whole other show I think we could do. But mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the why we're falling behind and why kids are not happy. I mean, it is, yeah. is it related? Let's start with why kids are not happy. Why are American kids now so much less happy than kids in other countries and so much more likely to be depressed compared with American kids uh, just 20 years ago. Right. Uh, and I think the key research here comes from uh, Joseph Campbell, an American sociologist. Back in the 1960s, he interviewed uh, teenagers across the United States, and among other questions, he asked them, if all your friends wanted you to join a particular club, but one of your parents did not approve, would you still join the club? And back then, in the 1960s, the majority of American teenagers said no, they would not join if one of their parents did not approve, because the good opinion 
and good regard of their parents mattered more to them than the combined opinion of all their friends. So between 2008 and 2015, I posed an updated version of the same question to kids all across the United States. I asked them, if all your friends wanted you to join a particular social media site, would you consult your parents first? And the most common answer I got was not yes, it was not no, it's laughter. The kids burst out laughing. As one girl said, my parents would probably think Ask FM is some kind of radio station. You know, why would I ask them? Um, that's the shift that drives many of the phenomena I describe in my book. A shift from a culture in which kids valued parents' opinions above their peers' opinion to a, a, a culture in which kids value their peers' opinion mm-hmm. way above what right. their parents think. Right. The parents are now irrelevant. Right. Why does that, what does that have to do with kids being unhappy? Look, if the most important relationship in your life is with your parents, you can relax. My daughter can say to me, I hate you. I'm never going to talk to you ever again. If she were to say that to me, there would be consequences. You know, she might lose some privileges. But she knows nothing's really going to change. I'm not going to stop loving her. She's still going to be my daughter. But if she speaks the same words to her best friend, I hate you, I never want to talk to you ever again, that friendship may be over. It's certainly going to be transformed. It may never be the way it was before. If you are a child or a teenager, your relationships with your peers are contingent and ephemeral and fragile, and every kid knows it. Mm -hmm. And this is why they're checking their phone every five minutes, because God forbid somebody texts you and you don't respond promptly. They might think you're ignoring them, and then they'll be angry. And before you know it, you can go from being the most popular kid to being the odd girl out in an hour. Right. And they've all seen it happen. Talking to Leonard Sachs, who's the author of The Collapse of Parenting, How We Hit Our Kids When We Treat Them Like Grown-Ups. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Dr. Leonard Sachs, who's the author of The Collapse of Parenting, How We Hurt Our Kids When We Treat Them Like Grownups. want to get now in a little bit, if we can, to, to some of the solutions here, because we've talked quite a bit about the things that are, are going on that are, that are causing problems. I mean, we talked about uh, the kids being so disrespectful and, and being on medication and, and uh, their, their happiness, generally speaking. So what is it that we can do to straighten these out? I mean, let's start with, with what you were talking about with, with uh, friendships. I mean, right. friendship, so you know, how are we going to make sure that parents get back? Some of the solutions come right, right out of the problems I described. I mentioned how uh, there's been this huge shift in the lived experience of American children and teens. And parents have facilitated that shift. I find many parents who are picking their kids up from school and uh, driving them to soccer and then to computer coding class and then do a play date with some other kid. And I tell the parent, cancel the play date. Make a family date instead. Family has to take priority. You're going for a three-day ski weekend in Lake Tahoe and your daughter asks if she can bring her friend along. The answer is no, she can't. Because going up on the chairlift, it's got to be you and her. That's the point of the weekend, is to reconnect with your daughter. If it's her friend and her going up on the ski lift, all you've done is subsidize a very expensive play date. Prioritize the family. No screens at the supper table. Make sure you have 
suffer again. In the, in the book, I present this research showing that with each additional meal a kid has at home with a parent over the last seven days, you see a significant decrease in the risk of anxiety, decrease in the risk of depression, increase in life satisfaction. We have to fight for time at home with our kids. When you're in the car, turn off the devices. Your kids should not have an earbud in the car. They shouldn't be listening to Justin Bieber. They should be listening to you. Uh, that we're all in a rush. The time right. in the car is very precious time. It's time for you to listen to your child and for your child and you to have a conversation. No screens in the car, no right. screens at the supper table. Well, how do you do that, though? I mean, I think all of us, anybody who's had kids, we, you know, we know. Hi, so how was your day at school? Fine. You know, hey, what'd you do? Nothing. What'd you learn? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, so how, what, what's your suggestion on how to, yes. to stimulate yeah, so these things? I've got a whole things. chapter on enjoy uh, because... You know, American parents say that they enjoy the time they have with their kids, but in fact, researchers are finding they don't. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize-winning author, uh, researcher, uh, and his colleagues uh, questioned American women about their six and gave them 16 activities: uh, working uh, uh, for pay, cooking, housework, and caring for your child or being with your child. And being with the child was near the bottom for American women, whereas it was near the top for women in France. Um, women in America, mothers especially, are multitasking. They're trying to spend time with their kid. At the same time, they're trying to answer an email. At the same time, they're trying to fold laundry. Do not do that. You have to make time with your child where your child has your undivided attention, and that's true whether your child is 3 years old or 17 years old. When I'm on duty with my child, I'm outside. I do my best to be outside because if I'm indoors, I'm going to be distracted by a screen. We go outdoors and do whatever there is to do outdoors, uh, her and me. Um, so you ha it's, it's, it has to be a skill that you relearn. Don't try and do something else when you're with your child. Okay. And you also talk about humility as being something that, that we need to be focusing on, and yeah. which goes kind of hand-in-hand uh, hand with what a lot of people are talking about, about the me generation and, and kids thinking yeah. that they're such great you know, hot stuff. I, I have visited now more than 400 schools, and when you visit American schools, one of the things that really strikes you to every part of the country uh, is how American schools indoctrinate kids in their awesomeness. I was in a third-grade classroom, and the assignment in the third grade classroom, the kids were required to take a piece of blank paper, write their name at the top, and underneath their name, write five adjectives about how awesome they are. So one boy wrote genius, misspelled, excellent, misspelled, uh, creative, amazing, and so forth. We indoctrinate kids in their awesomeness. Why is this harmful? Look, as a family doctor, I have seen the trajectory. This girl was 15 years old. Everyone was telling her what a great writer she was and how amazing she was. And I followed her. She was my patient for 10 years. And at age 25, she's written two books, she can't, two novels. She can't get an agent. Uh, she's working for low pay in a, in a cubicle. And she is resentful. And she is angry. And she watches the Today Show. And there's this woman younger than her who's on the Today Show talking about her novel. And she can't even get an agent. The culture of bloated self-esteem leads to resentment, and I see it all the time. I see it on a daily basis. The culture of humility leads to contentment and happiness. 
This is not a new observation. But you know what? When I talk to American kids about humility, they literally have no idea what you're even talking about. I'll say, who can tell me what humility is? And a boy raises his hand. I call him. He says, humility means trying to convince yourself you're dumb when you know you're smart. And I say, okay, excuse me, no, that's not humility. That's psychosis, okay? That's a willful detachment from reality. And I tell them, humility means being as interested in other people as you are in yourself. They've never heard this before. They've received no instruction. And it is really can be, can be life-changing. And I describe stories in the book uh, using real names of people whose lives have really been changed when parents understand these uh, really simple uh, strategies. Well, give us, give us a couple of those strategies. Uh, okay, so we talked about teaching humility. Don't puff up bloated self-esteem. Instead, teach humility, model humility. One of the big challenges is that you cannot teach a virtue which you yourself do not possess. If you're going to uh, be a better parent, you have to become a better person. Um, and face-to-face -face conversation, um, the virtue of humility, going outdoors, um, reading to your kids, letting your kids read to you, creating stuff together, uh, and turning off the screens uh, are all strategies that don't cost anything. And so many parents are afraid of their kids. And they'll say, well, you know, in theory, I guess this might work, but I could never take my phone away from my kid. A kid should never be going to bed with a phone. Uh, and yet many, many American kids are going to bed with a cell phone. And at 2 in the morning, your daughter's getting a, a text, oh, my goodness, big uh, news, Justin and Sonia have broken up, and she's up for an hour in the middle of the night text messaging, and she's sleep-deprived the next day. No child should be going to bed with a cell phone. At 9 o'clock at night, you switch the devices off. You put them in the charger, which stays in the parent's bedroom. She can have it back the next morning. This has to be the parent's call. It's not reasonable to put this choice in the lap of your 14-year-old daughter. What is she supposed to say tomorrow at school when her friend says, hey, I texted you last night at midnight. How come you didn't answer? She's supposed to say, well, researchers at Stanford have found that sleep deprivation is a major risk factor for depression in adolescents. Come on, that's ridiculous. You have to allow her to say, hey, my evil parents take my phone every night at 9 they won't and they have it back to the next morning. You have to be that evil parent. You have to be both strict and loving, both strict and loving. And right, but how does, that, how does that show humility, though? Um, okay, uh, that's a different, uh, that is a different story. Um, uh, but the culture of the texting and social media is the way kids are actually using it is all about me. It's all about here I am at the party, uh, here I am at the football game, here I am sticking my finger up my nose. The culture of social media as it's actually practiced by American kids is the opposite of humility, and it undermines the teaching of humility. So I'm not telling parents that you need to eliminate social media, but you need to guide and govern and limit kids' use of social media. You have to use some programs written by very good people in Silicon Valley, like Nanny Mobile, My Mobile Watchdog, so you can set your child's device no more than 20 minutes a day on social media. After that, the device will shut them off, and uh, you tell them, turn the screen off and do something else. You don't need to spend three hours a day on Instagram. Well, Pretty darn good advice, I'd say. Yeah, if, but that, that I think is, you know, you have to deal yeah, with. Instagram is the opposite of humility. You want to right. teach humility, you got to turn off Instagram. Right. But, you, you know, as you said, you can't teach a value that you don't possess, and I think a lot of parents are pretty self-involved as well. 
Well, and, you know, toward the end of the book, I say, look, you may feel like you're not a good, a, a virtuous person, so how can you teach virtue to your child? Well, you have to try. Teaching your child to be virtuous is not a special exercise reserved for the exemplary parent. It's the most important thing you have to do as a parent. And that's not a sermon, and it's not a guess. We now have longitudinal cohort study research showing that the most important and powerful predictor of health, wealth, and happiness at 32 years of age, among parameters measured at age 12, is virtue and character. It's not your IQ. It's not your grade point average. It's not how many friends you have. Right. It's right. Uh, your character. So teaching virtue and character is the first job of the parent, and you have to do it, even though you may have shortcomings. We all do. Leonard Sachs, the author of The Collapse of Parenting, How We Hurt Our Kids When We Treat Them Like Grown-Ups. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. You know, a lot of the STEM-related toys and games that we review here on Positive Parenting in our Parents at Play segments focus on science and engineering, things like building. This week, though, we're going to take a look at a number of entertaining games that emphasize math. They're all from Jack's Limited, and you can find out more about all of them at jacksgames.com. Let's start with the game of chips. Players take turn rolling the dice and removing any combination of chips that are numbered 1 through 10 that match what they rolled. For example, if you roll an 8, you can take out the 8, the 7, and the 1, the 6 and the 2, the 5 and the 3, the 5, the 2, and the 1, or the 4, the 3, and the 1. This part of the game is a great way for young players to use and master basic addition facts. But wait, there's more, too. There's also a small element of strategy involved, too. If it's your turn, for example, and there aren't enough chips left on the table to match your dice, you score the total of those chips. The lowest score wins. It's for two or more players, age seven and up, and costs about eight bucks. Match them. Each player gets five cards, and the first player lays one down. The next in line plays as many cards as possible to match the value of the first player's card. It's similar to what we were just talking about in the game of chips. If you can't come up with a match, you draw two from the deck and either make a match or establish a new target. The goal, of course, is to be the first to use all your cards. To win, you're going to need a combination of luck and strategy to make your opponents draw more cards. Of course, that's the object. And a pretty good sense of humor. It's for two to four players, ages seven and up, and costs only around $4. Over and out. It all starts with what they call a tip-top card. Players draw cards from the deck and play cards from their own hand, keeping track of the total and hoping not to be the one who goes over the tip-top limit. It's not all about addition, though. Special cards require players to subtract or even change the tip-top number. A fun, fast-paced way to use basic math facts and, of course, to spend time together, which is what it's all about, right? It's for two to eight players, ages seven and up, and costs about $7. Polygon. The rules of this game are sometimes a challenge to follow, but the game itself is well worth learning. Each of the six-sided pieces has three numbers and three colors, and your goal is to lay down your tiles in patterns and combinations that get you the most points. It sounds simple, but this game requires a lot of thinking and strategizing. It's also a very fun way to practice basic addition and multiplication facts. 
It's for two to four players ages seven and up, although it's a pretty good game to play by yourself as well. Cost 16 bucks. Sequence Numbers. If you like the sequence games, and we've talked about a lot of them here on Parents at Play and Positive Parenting, you already have a pretty good idea of how to play sequence numbers. But this one's a little bit different. In the other sequence games, you match pictures on cards with pictures on the game board itself. In numbers, each card has an addition or subtraction equation, and the answers are on the board. You solve the equation and put down your chip. As with other sequence games, the goal is to get five chips in a row, up, down, or diagonally, to make it a little easier to find your answer on the board and to help younger players double-check their math, the equation and the correct answer are printed in the same color on the cards and on the board. This is a really fun game that will get you and the kids thinking and laughing together as you brush up on your basic math facts. It's for ages 7 and up, for 2 to 4 players, around 1650. You'll find reviews of a lot more toys and games that parents and kids can do together at parentsatplay.com. And we'll be back next week with another Parents at Play column or possibly an Ask Mr. Dad column. But you don't have to wait quite that long because you can go right to that website, parentsatplay.com, and find out more right there. And, of course, as you know, there's more positive parenting coming up right ahead. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my 8th grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brandt. We spent a lot of time hearing about and talking about how if the United States is going to win out in a high-tech global economy, every young American must master high-level mathematics, and that includes algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and even calculus. And in the 40 states where the Common Core curriculum holds sway, students have to take on advanced mathematics or they're not going to graduate. But is that really true? Well, according to my guest for this part of today's show, no, that's not true at all, in fact. He says that blind faith in the powers that are ascribed to mathematics is wholly or largely wrong and lacks factual support and is based on wishful logic. To go even further, he says that mandating advanced study for everyone sacrifices huge numbers of students and prevents significant talents from being developed in other areas. Let me give you an example of how this plays out. Currently, one in five students fails to graduate from high school, and nearly half of college students leave without a degree. The reason, according to my guest, is that math classes or failure to pass math classes is the chief academic reason those students don't finish. 
We'll start talking about the math, myth, and other stories when Positive Parenting continues right after this. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? <laughs> uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad, and my guest for this part of today's show is Andrew Hacker, who is the author of The Math, Myth, and Other STEM Delusions. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. So you talk about something which, I mean, the whole book is kind of a series of of exercises in horrification, but one of them was that 20% or half of high school students aren't graduating, and 20% of... Uh, college grads, or actually college students, are not graduating, and you're putting the blame on math classes or the failure of math classes. What is going on there? Well, what I'm saying is that uh, one out of five young Americans does not finish high school, which is awful, and it's one of the worst rates in the developed world. When you walk in the street, one out of five people doesn't have a high school diploma. And the chief academic reason is that they failed algebra. Now, I realize there's problems of prison and pregnancy, but we're talking about academic reasons. The same thing is true at the college level. If you take people who have finished high school and want to go on to college, whether it's two-year or four-year, over almost half don't get a degree, certainly a bachelor's degree. And the chief reason, again, is they failed freshman math at college. And my question is, why are we doing this? We're shooting ourselves in the foot. And we're shooting ourselves in the foot because all these people who are not graduating college are basically not not getting a degree in anything, when, and they could be majoring in art or music or science or something else. Is that that's where you're going with that? Uh, absolutely. They could be majoring in a whole lot of things. They could become football coaches, uh, fashion designers, uh, anything like that. And we just withhold the degree arbitrarily because we have this high math it's mainly algebra, hurdle, that everybody has to jump over. Okay, so before we get into this, I want to go through a couple of other quick things for you to debunk about, I mean, the, the phrase STEM and STEAM has, I think the two of them have just been abused in a way to the point of, of being meaningless anymore. But they're there. We talk about how American companies can't keep up because we don't, we aren't uh, hiring, getting enough uh, engineers into our system that we have to bring them in from abroad, and that uh, China is catching up to us in the number of journal articles published, and that's all because of math. Uh, where where did this become such an obsession with with something that we clearly don't understand? Well, we're told that we live in a what's called a techno age. And a lot of us are very impressed with everything from the latest iPhone to whatever is coming down the pike. And we say, well, yes, there's a lot of technological stuff coming along. The next century is going to be based on it. But the 
when it comes to the actual people who do technological or STEM work, there's no shortage at all. That's one of the many myths that we have. Uh, for example, uh, we don't have a shortage of engineers. In fact, a lot of engineers are looking for jobs. And projections by the Department of Labor for the next decade say that, in fact, with certain specialties, like electrical engineering, we'll need fewer of them than we had in the past. Wow. Now, I just want to take a, a quick step back and let people know that you're not just a, a malcontent who's griping about math, that you actually were a professor of math for a while. So, I mean, you, you know what you're talking about here. Uh, I teach both political science, that was my original uh, field, and now I teach both political science and a math course. But it's not an algebra, geometry, trigonometry math course. It's one in what I call numeracy. That is, becoming agile, becoming skillful with numbers, in a way I call adult arithmetic. <laughs> so what goes on in that class? I'm curious. All right. Um, give you an example. Um, one of the exercises we had, and this is to get yourself, you know, really uh, skillful with numbers, is to imagine what would happen if we decimalized time. You know, the decimal system is a pretty efficient system. Our current time system is very uh, cumbersome. 60 seconds, seven days in a week, um, you know, 12 months in a year. So we decimalized time. And to see what it looked like, 100 seconds in a minute and all the rest. And what we got was a configuration, which actually works. And the query is, what would we gain by it? For example, a 10-day week. How would we work it out? Three weekend days in a row, or maybe an off day in the middle of the week. And what we're doing is using numbers as a new type of language to better understand ourselves and what we can do. Okay. And how would that work, just curiosity, <laughs> I mean, with a 10-day week? I guess we, you know, we're, we're limited by a day being sunrise to sunrise. So oh, we'd have would, to divide that into 10 hours or 100 hours or something instead of the 12 hours or 24 hours that it is now, right? Uh, we could have 10, 10 hours in a day. They'd be a bit longer, so we might have to divide them up. But actually, sunrise to sunrise does not apply in Alaska, for example. Uh, so, And uh, the same thing with our months. Um, we could have 10 months in a year, alternating 36 days and 37 days. Uh, nothing wrong with that. It will, it will work. Uh, but the, the reason we're doing this is, let, let me give you an example, which would be a parallel one. Suppose, as some people suggest, we should move from our current health system to a single-payer one. You know, we hear that from Bernie Sanders and a few other people. Well, what we then need to do is be, to use numbers to discover what would the new one cost where would there be gains, where there be losses, and so on. And that's what we do in my class. No algebra. We simply have what I might call a sophisticated use of numbers. Okay, so we have math, and I think one of the biggest things, and I hear this, I've got a middle school daughter, and I'm sure everybody who's got kids at various ages will tell you that they've heard the same thing and probably said the same thing, is how does this apply to my life? And I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I was helping her with... Uh, algebra slash geometry where she's looking at transformations of figures on 
a, a graph, an XY graph. And there's a thing about the rotating images from the origin or rotating them at various points. And then I, I wasn't grasping that or I wasn't remembering it from my own uh, middle school days. And so I went on to Khan Academy and, and watched a couple of videos on it. And the gentleman who was doing the videos on Khan Academy was saying, well, this is incredibly important because all of the uh, animation programs and so much of computer programming has to do with, with transformations of images and scaling. And, and it, it just made no sense to me, honestly. And, <laughs> and, I, I'm, and I'm not somebody who, who runs screaming away from math. I kind of like it. Uh, but it, but this was my my inability to answer the question about how does this apply? How does this make sense in my life that that I'm hearing and and then finding myself asking also? What your daughter was asked to do, you you've never had to do that in your adult life. Now, what I do admit in the book is that about five percent, only five percent of occupations require mathematics. And in fact, if we take, uh, what we said, animation. And uh, some animation is very good, you know, very. It's not just like The Simpsons, you know, two-dimensional, but it's uh, got a nice three-dimensional feel to it. You need calculus to do that. But we only need a very small number of animators who, ha who need those calculus skills. Most of the people in animation are artists, are people who uh, design the stories, the music in the background, you know, that sort of thing. Same thing is true with video games. Uh, I would say 95% of the people who work in video games, putting them together and all the rest, 95 don't need any more math than what I call adult arithmetic. And that's, I, I guess, the, so they're talking about the people who need calculus or need these more, more complex math skills are the people who are designing the programs, because most of us would just be getting a program and using that, right? Right. And even when it comes to uh, programming and uh, software design and the rest, that's not math. Uh, coding, which is what's uh, you know, the uh, substratum of, of everything in the computerized age, coding is, it doesn't require any math at all. It's uh, a matter of instructions, which are fed through various symbols. Some are numbers, but uh, no, I, I sat in, while I was writing my book, I sat in on several... Uh, computer science classes, and from beginning to end, there was no mathematics involved in it at all. Talking with Andrew Hacker, who's the author of The Math, Myth, and Other STEM Delusions. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Andrew about more math myths and, more importantly, what we can do about it. I'm Armin Brandt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Andrew Hacker, who's the author of The Math, Myth, and Other STEM Delusions. Uh, Andrew, so in addition to, to the radio show and the writing that I do, I also do a lot of toy reviews and was just in New York at this massive toy fair. And the, the word STEM is everywhere, as is the word coding. And I remember seeing a lot of the new toys. Some of them are absolutely fascinating that talk about coding and, and thinking at some point that... You know, it used to be 
you would just build a tower out of blocks or you'd build a right. <laughs> you'd put blocks together to make a roadway and that was just having fun or building a tower out of blocks now that's coding and now that's stem uh, what do you think of that the, it it just seems to have have taken all the fun out of childhood in a way to to call it something that it really isn't necessarily uh, i'm i'm afraid of what's happening here because uh, we're putting such an emphasis on science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Uh, as you know, at our colleges, uh, those departments get much of the budget, whereas poetry, philosophy, theater are being downgraded. And, uh, you know, we almost look at Koreans, we look at Chinese, and we say they're our chief competitors. Do we really want to become more like them? Because they don't have something called the liberal arts, and this has been one of the great, uh, what should I say, triumphs of American, not just education, but of life. And uh, in addition to this, I'd say that it isn't true. We don't need to have everybody be a coder, everybody no calculus. There's no need for that at all. Um, and I'm not sure there's a kind of Pied Piper effect here. Somebody's passing along this message. A lot of people are accepting it, and it's just not true. What do we do then? Uh, what I would say is, uh, how should I put it? Uh, don't go with that tide. What, what we really need are creative ideas, and there are a lot of people who are very creative, including children. You talked about blocks in the past. You know, the things with blocks were, you built your own house with those blocks. Today, you have to follow the instructions. And I would say that the the kid who starts making a palace or a railroad station or whatever they do with blocks is more likely to think of a new type of Google or Facebook or Twitter for the upcoming century, uh, something that nobody had ever thought about before. And do you think that mathematics or any particular subset of mathematics is good for thinking in general, that it helps you process information, that it's a good way to learn how to think? Uh, this, I would say, uh, Arwen, is uh, myth number four. The notion <laughs> okay. that math teaches you how to think. Yes, it teaches you how to think about mathematics, but it is almost as if that kind of thinking is in a closed room like a geometrical proof. It's, geometrical proof is about geometry. Uh, take one example, experience I had. and uh, I've, <laughs> I have been a juror uh, five times. I don't know why they keep picking me. Because <laughs> uh, you're such a mathematical criminal. thinker, that's why. Uh, there you go. They've all been criminal trials, two of them murders. And... Uh, what the prosecution says to the jurors are, we, the prosecution, will prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that defendants actually, you know, fired the gun and killed someone. Proved. Now, that kind of proof is fascinating. That proof is based on evidence of all sorts that you have to weigh and so on. The proof in geometry and algebra has nothing to do with proof, let's say, in a, in a criminal trial. And... It's just, as I say, kind of, they used to talk about locked room puzzles. Uh, mathematical proof isn't a locked room. Now, let's take mathematicians. We all 
may know someone. Would we go to a uh, mathematician for a solution to the Syrian crisis? I mean, uh, hey, they're awfully good <laughs> at topology, but what's that got to do when you have, you know, everything that's swirling around in a country called Syria? Now, as people go through their daily lives, though, whether they know it or not, they're being assaulted by mathematical concepts all the time. And there's there's some that I that just make me want to scream when you talk about some, particularly something, the, the phrase, this is the fastest growing whatever it is. Uh, and, and if you look at the numbers, and I happen to be somebody who likes to look at the numbers, you realize that this thing went from 1% to 2%, which is a, a, a massive change. And the the other market share happen to have been 70%. Well, they're not going to go from 70 to 140, so they can't possibly have the same level of acceleration. So there is out there, I think, a need for what you're talking about, numeracy, that there is is kind of an innumeracy in a way that people throw numbers around without really using them, or they don't understand the difference between percent and a percentage when somebody wins a, win a pri- presidential primary by 42% over 38%. That that's not, you know, that you have to be careful about how you describe the difference between those two. Absolutely. And you also have to know, ask, is this a reliable sample? How are the questions worded? You know, all sorts of questions like that. And then I'm teaching this in this pilot course in numeracy that I'm teaching. Uh, that's what we do. And we look at numbers in the real world. Uh, for example, uh, you, read it, you read in the paper that... Um, cell phones may damage your brain. Well, let's look at the numbers and see what's really going on there. And Now, there's one problem, though, and that is that in high schools and colleges, whether it's high school teachers or college professors in mathematics, they don't want to teach numeracy because they don't get status points for that. They call it dumbing down, demeaning. Uh, what they feel that we have to do is algebra, trigonometry, calculus, you know, which is difficult, rigorous. Well, that's true. But uh, as I said, it, this is math is mainly in this locked room. Uh, for And I'm not sure what I'm, I guess what I'm really asking is a simple three-letter question, three-letter word, why? Why do we, currently there are four million 14-year-olds who are taking a course in algebra, four million of them taking algebra. The question is, why? And I would put the math people on the defensive. I would make them show persuasively why it's really necessary that every single 14-year-old sits through quadratic equations. I wonder about that because it seems like if you if you stop at certain places, you're you're limiting where somebody could go. I mean, some people may not develop an interest in math, or they may realize five years later that, ah, you know, if I only would have finished that math class, now I could really get into something that I, I enjoy more, but I have to go back and take that remedial class. Uh, I mean, do, do, you, do you not see a value in having some basic minimum standards? I mean, I can see, you know, cutting it off in college, making it optional, but do you really want to cut it off in middle school? Well, let's try this. Uh, what, do we really want to make everybody do trigonometry? You know, tangents, sines, cosines. Boy, I everybody, hope not. Because 5% may need 
use trigonometry later. Everybody, just for 5%. And if we make everybody do it, 20% will fail, and they'll lose their chance at an education because of that. And then getting on to college, even more will fail. Uh, we just have to ask the cost of this. Now, to tell the truth, if you discover that you really do need trig for something you want to do, take the course. Take it in the evening. You can do that. Uh, we have people, for example, who discover later that they want to become a doctor. So they can take a few pre-med courses at a community college and catch up. Okay. And how is your numeracy class being received by the people who are taking it? Well, the, the students have told me they really enjoy it. Uh, they were afraid they were going to have more algebra, and they discovered that and, and we're doing everything, like, for example, uh, marriages, uh, who marries whom, and a lot of numbers on that. Or let, just let me give you a figure uh, that came out in one of our classes. We we're pouring through some uh, vital statistics reports from the Department of uh, Health and Human Services. In Nebraska, the average woman has 2.2 children. In Vermont, the average children, woman ends up with 1.6 children. Wow, those are numbers. And you begin to ask, what's going on? You know, Nebraska, 2.2, Vermont, 1.6. And it piques your curiosity. You want to find out something further because that's telling you something about something. <laughs> Well, I guess you need more kids to be doing farming than you do to be getting uh, <laughs> to be getting maple syrup. I that's that's, that's true, but Vermont has a lot of farms. Hey, Alan, I don't know the answer, but the number <laughs> yeah. tells you something new. Something's going on here, and you get it from the numbers. Well, and it makes you think, and that's the purpose of the whole thing. So, Oh, absolutely. Uh, as a teacher, there's nothing more important than that, making you think. and But all sorts of things make you think. T.S. Eliot's poetry makes you think. Uh, thinking about was the Civil War inevitable in the U.S. makes you think. Uh, and I would suggest that that kind of thinking, whether it's poetry or history, is probably more serious thinking than what you learn in math. Because the thinking in math is just thinking about math itself. Andrew Hacker is the author of The Math, Myth, and Other STEM Delusions. Andrew, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Well, you asked all the right questions, and I enjoyed myself, Armin. <laughs> right. Thank you. And good luck to your daughter, by the way. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.